Coming up on today's show, we've banned flights from Pakistan and India for 30 days. Did we do it soon enough? We'll chat with Tim Upple, the Conservative MP from Edmonton. The provincial budget out of hand, the federal budget out of hand. We're going to have to pay those bills. Are sales taxes in our future? We'll chat with the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. And a great discovery by a trio of students from the University of Alberta that could really help reverse the fentanyl overdose epidemic. We talked about this throughout uh, the week here on the show. Um, What's going on with international travel? Well, the federal government finally did give in uh, to the increasing pressure to bring in changes to international travelers arriving in Canada, many of them coming from countries where COVID cases are absolutely skyrocketing. And these new and emerging variants are being reported. Top of the list, of course, was India. We know what's going on in India. It's a catastrophe right now with COVID there. That country reported more than 300,000 cases on Wednesday. And that's probably way lower than the actual number of cases. Uh, Yet flights were still arriving from Delhi each and every day. Now, yesterday, MPs in the House unanimously backed a block motion to stop the flights. The premiers of Quebec and Ontario have also asked for that action to be taken. And finally, at the end of business yesterday, the government announced we're bringing in a 30-day ban on flights from India and Pakistan. Tim Upple is the Conservative MP from Edmonton Mill Woods, and he joins us now. Uh, Mr. Upple, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning, Jay. Good to be here. Um, so yesterday, uh, Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole lent his voice to the growing number of calls for you know the federal government to do something on this front. Uh, obviously, you must be relieved to see this action's being taken. Uh, maybe a little late, but at least it's being taken now. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, that's the thing with this government. It's uh, you know they've been slow to react, slow on vaccines, slow on the border. Um, even a year ago, a little over a year ago, you know, we were calling for flights that were coming in directly from hotspots like China, like Italy, other places to stop. And and they told us, well, no, we can't do that. You know, the, the virus doesn't see borders. But you know, when you when you stop the flights, well, that does help. And so, uh, especially with these variants, we've been asking the government, pushing them to uh, control the border better. And 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 we just weren't getting that action. But yesterday, they did take some action, and we're pleased to see that. Um, I, I'm wondering, when we, the UK did it, Hong Kong did it, France did it, a bunch of different countries have brought in these travel restrictions uh, from that region of the world where we see cases going out of control. What was the reasoning from the federal government as to why they were delaying or weren't doing it earlier when we clearly saw that this was uh, an alarming situation? What was the logic to saying, uh, we're, we're not going to do that at this point? You know, they, they didn't give a reason. They didn't, and, did and they? It, no, they didn't. And, and it has been very frustrating because, like you said, you could see it. Other countries taking action. We kept asking this government, pushing them that you need to take action. It's just like the variants from before. I mean, now we see these variants taking hold in Canada. Um, the, but, you know, from the UK, Brazil, South Africa, um, they put up these uh, hotel quarantine um, process to stop those variants. Well, it didn't stop it. No. And, and, you know, the whole, whole hotel quarantine um, issue itself is questionable and, and the way it's run it's not managed very well and then now with this new one from india we've been saying stop the flights let's at least get a uh, handle on it let's at least find out what it is you know you hear about this double mutant and you talk to doctors and they're saying well we don't have much information on it well will the vaccines work on it well we don't know that yet so let's stop the flights and find out let's let's let the doctors do their job so now we know that the last flight landed overnight uh, at pearson uh, from this yes. part of the world um but we've already got the, the the mutant virus showed up in Alberta. It's been detected in Quebec. Are we too late? Have we, have we sort of been too slow to react yet again, and now we're dealing with something that could have been avoided? I, I think so, yes. I, I think, uh, you know, this could have been avoided if we had taken action when, when many other countries were. But 
it's good that we did it last night and stopped these flights, and hopefully we can contain this. And you know, and and you're saying, you know, these are the the cases that we know about here uh, with in uh, Alberta, BC, and, and uh, Quebec. There's probably others that we don't know about. Um, so hopefully we can get a get a handle on it. And you know, we really are in this situation because we're lagging on on vaccines mm-hmm. like where where the where's the usa on vaccines they're starting to open up they're talking about you know fully opening up their economy they got baseball games with thousands of people going whether you think that's a good idea or not it's happening um at a much greater scale than here um the uk is opening up parts of europe are opening up and in canada we're talking about more shutdowns lockdowns kids aren't going to school um and, and it's because they mismanaged the vaccine situation so much that we're we're stuck and having to wait for vaccines. So we we're asking, you know, the, the government continues to ask Canadians to sacrifice more to allow their vaccine program to catch up. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, uh, already this morning I've got text as we were talking about COVID from people saying, this is ridiculous. Look at Texas. It's wide open. Everything's going fine. We need to stop. We need to move on. Uh, it's really, really important to say that um, we've got two different realities going on when you take a look at what's going on in the United States and what's going on in Canada. We can't compare them. First of all, Texas, just the amount of natural immunity because so many people got sick over the course of a year, plus the fact that they've done 200 million doses of vaccine in the United States. It's apples and oranges. It it doesn't compare at all. They are so far ahead of us, and that's where we should have been. Um, You know, and the government kept coming out making all these announcements of the millions of doses that they bought, and then we kept asking, well, okay, so where are the contracts? Yeah. Let's see when those are coming. They wouldn't provide the contracts. They stalled us in committee, wouldn't allow you know, uh, any of these documents to come forward. And now we're finding out that all these vaccines are coming at the end of the year because we're at the back of the line. Um, they originally made this deal with a Chinese company to, for the vaccines early on. And when that deal fell through, and you know, it, it put us at the back of the line. It, then now we're waiting on Pfizer and, and, and you know, AstraZeneca and other vaccines when we really should have been right up front. Yeah, and I think you know, our, our, our saving grace here, if there is to be one uh, to get us out of this by the summertime, is going to be the United States uh, vaccinating their population, saying we've got all these extras, we're going to have to protect our poor cousins to the north. That's our only hope. I, it really is. And, and, you know, I mean, as much as um, myself and our, our team, we, we criticize the government, try to hold them to account, we really want them to succeed. We want them to do yeah. well because we, Canadians need it. Canadians need it not only for our health, but for our economy to, go, to open up again. I mean, just, you know, and, and on a daily basis, I talk to small businesses that, you know, in Edmonton that have been struggling and now another wave. And, and it's just, they just don't know if they can, they can make it. And it's not just the business side of things, it's the, the, the mental anguish. They're just, you know, on that side of things, it is so difficult on people. It's difficult on kids when all their programs are being cancelled. And they're, um, you know, uh, I was saying to my wife, it's, it's like families are on this really, really long road trip, right? Like you're in the same yeah, house, yeah. you're in the same with the same kids. Um, and, and the kids are just, you know, arguing with each other. It, it's hard. It's a, it's a really difficult time. Yeah. And so, it, you know, if we had these vaccines, we would have been in a better position, but hopefully we get them soon and uh, it'll be a much, hopefully a much better summer coming up. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. I mean, because you're right. It's just, it's absolutely exhausting. Um, so we've stopped the flights from India and Pakistan for 30 days. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we live in a global uh, situation yes. here. And, and these people could fly from India to four other places and then still land in Toronto, right? So um, what other safeguards should be brought in? Should we be looking at I mean. Can, should we be looking at doing what was done in some other countries where we just say, that's it, nobody in, nobody out? 
Yeah, so I mean, there are a, a lot of loopholes in, the, in this plan, and I, and I think we we need to continue to monitor it. The only problem is that when we do have situations come up, this government is so slow to react. I mean, so the situations with the hotel quarantining, um, first of all, they couldn't even um, you know justify to us that where's the numbers showing that it'd be better to quarantine in a hotel than at home, um, and then and, and especially you know put on this huge charge on on Canadians to mm-hmm. to be doing that. Um, so they didn't have the numbers, but fine, they're doing that. The program itself isn't working well, and so that's my concern with with this situation. Where if they're going to you know close it off one way, are, are they not going to be able to track the people that come in to the U.S. and drive over? Because apparently, like you said, more and more people are doing that. So we we do have to control that. We uh, you know we, we may have to put in some uh, controls at at uh, at our land borders as well to ensure that we're we're managing that situation. Because any Canadian that has left in the last little while has known that. You probably shouldn't yes. leave, right? You're like absolutely it, right. Your trip is going to be disrupted. It's very possible it's going to be disrupted. Things could go wrong. If, you, if you're leaving, it, it must be for a very, very important reason. And I, and I feel bad, to be honest, you know, for people that have to go for family funerals or maybe for someone that's, you know, at, at the end of life and they wanted to go visit them one last time. I feel bad for those people. There, there's no doubt about it. I talk to them, you know, regularly. Um, people are in very difficult situations. But, you know, we have to protect our general population in Canada. We have to do what we do, uh, you know, whatever we can to make sure that Canadians are as safe as possible. Yeah, and, and if we aren't going to close the borders completely, the quarantine program that we have and the testing program that we have for people who uh, arrive in this country needs to be something Canadians have faith in and have confidence in, and right now they don't. We just know that it's not being enforced properly and it's not being managed properly. It just isn't. And even, you know, rapid testing. There's other countries that are, they, they have rapid testing where kids are rapid testing, you know, twice a week before they go to school. Um, you know, they're testing at home. These are technologies that are that have been available around the world for months and months. Um, and, and we just don't have them in Canada. They just didn't deploy them here. So there is technology out there that's available that, that could make it safer for Canadians. But unfortunately, you know, this government just has not invested in it and, and, and they have brought it to Canada. We're, we're lagging vaccines on testing and it's, it's hurting Canadians. Uh, one last question. As a conservative government, um, the situation that we're seeing playing out within Canada's borders with different provinces bringing in different restrictions and, you know, some people calling for uh, the Emergency Measures Act to be brought in and the, and the federal government to take control over the entire situation from coast to coast. Is that something that conservatives think is a good idea? Do we need to have the federal government more involved at this point or should we be continuing to leave it to the provinces? No, I think a stronger, better leadership from the federal government on issues that are federal issues, and then the rest of it work with the provinces, um, and and you know and and be upfront with them. Like you see the, the the you know the liberals now blaming Ontario for not distributing vaccines that just came in. I think they came in on a Saturday, and then Monday they came out and said, "Well, hey, there's a million vaccines that haven't been distributed." You know, so they just you know they got to get past all of that the, the finger pointing, and and help the provinces get through this and and get them vaccines that's the main thing provinces are asking for vaccines provinces are saying we will distribute it we'll get them into canadians arms but we need to have them right and that's the problem yeah exactly we need to have that partnership working a whole lot better um uh, mr Apple, thank you so much for joining us this morning i appreciate your time well thank you for having me shake yeah good to have you thanks that is tim Apple, the conservative mp for edmonton mill woods going to switch gears here for the next uh, half hour or so and talk about uh, money and uh, how it's going to become, well, it is already, but it's going to become an even bigger issue for all of us fairly soon. If you think about it, just about every jurisdiction on the planet 
has seen their expenses soar and their revenues plunge as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic. Canada and Alberta, certainly uh, not exceptions to that by any means. We've seen huge deficits at the federal and provincial level, you know, $354 billion last year. Uh, for the feds, 154 for the coming year. Uh, you're looking at a half a trillion dollars in debt in two years. Um, same story in Alberta. We're seeing big, big deficits as we try and make our way through this. So whether you think that was money well spent or all a massive waste doesn't matter. The bills are going to have to be paid. And ultimately, you and I are going to have to pay them. Bill Robson is CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, and he joins us now to talk a bit more about the situation that we're in and how we get out of it. Bill, thanks for taking some time today. Appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm sorry the topic isn't more cheerful, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> hey, it's the reality of the world we're living in, Bill. Nothing we can do to get around it. Well, that is, that is, that is true, and uh, uh, I'll just uh, lead in, I guess, by recapping a little bit of what you said in, in slightly different words. Um, it's true right now that uh, governments are, are running big deficits yeah. uh, because of the pandemic. Um, when you look over time, though, uh, even, uh, you know, no matter, in a sense, what happens with interest payments uh, uh, and, and growth rates, uh, it might be a few cents one way or the other, but in the long run, you end up paying a dollar uh, in tax for every program you spend, give or take a nickel. And so that's part of what the, the message that we were trying to convey in advance of the federal budget was, uh, and, and certainly uh, afterwards as well. Right now, everything feels cheap, but the yeah. day comes and it's not that far off when a dollar is a dollar again. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, around the pandemic spending, I don't know if it can be all that critical. I mean, was it spent perfectly? Was it too much? We can argue about those details, but that is what it is. But when we take a look at this budget, and uh, you know, they build it as a pandemic budget, and a lot of the spending was focused on pandemic, but a lot of the other things that were in that budget uh, weren't necessarily going to go away when the pandemic goes away. These are permanent changes to how much money the government is spending, right? They are. And one of the things that's troubling is that, uh, you know, normally a five-year uh, outlook in a budget is is pretty good. It's certainly better than you know just one or two as we've been getting recently with no proper budget. Uh, but a lot of the spending that they're talking about doing in the short run uh, does fade out over the course of the projection period. Uh, and yet at the end of it, the federal government's quite a bit bigger than they were prefiguring even back in the fall. And so uh, we have uh, had it sort of slip through. Some people talk about this as an opportunity. Uh, other people wouldn't have such polite words for it. The uh, fact is that the federal government's getting quite a bit bigger uh, in the background here, and that is ongoing spending, and uh, the bill for that inevitably is going to come due. Um, yeah, and th- th- that's the issue. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, as a guy who studies these kinds of issues, not that long ago, we used to talk about deficits and debt, and you know the growing debt, and servicing the debt. That's what we talked about. That was the issue. That was the main concern. Suddenly, we're now talking about debt-to-GDP ratios and how those are what's really important. It doesn't matter how much deficit and debt you're running up. It's debt-to-GDP. What is that, and why is it now the, the, the parameter that we hear about? It's always mattered for some purposes. Uh, when you're thinking about the sustainability, you know, and, and uh, similarly to what you said earlier, not talking necessarily about the wisdom uh, of, of the fiscal policy, but simply the sustainability of it. If you're a credit rating agency, if you're a bondholder, then it really matters how big the uh, burden of the debt is compared to your revenues. And a lot of people use GDP as a, a shorthand indicator of how much revenue the economy might generate. So as a matter of 
sustainability and our ability to service the debt, whether it, we ran it up wisely or foolishly. If you see the debt to GDP ratio coming down, that's reassuring. If you see it going up, that's scary. Um, one of the problems that I have, though, uh, with, with the debt-to-GDP ratio used as sort of a target for fiscal policy is it's such a squishy thing. Um, mm-hmm. What GDP does is out of your control, and although we all get used to saying GDP, you know, it's the economy, um, it's, it's not a very compelling type of a number. I much prefer budget balance. I think budget balance is a much better uh, way of thinking about how to run the budget itself, uh, not least because when you when you got zero on the bottom line as your target or some you know definite number on the bottom line as a target, every smart idea for a dollar of spending uh, it brings with it the important challenge of saying, okay, well, you want a dollar here, so where are you going to save a dollar or are you really prepared to raise a dollar in tax? The debt-to-GDP ratio just doesn't give you that kind of discipline. Um, okay, let's, let's say that that is what we're talking about now, uh, debt-to-GDP. Where are we in terms of that parameter? Are we in a... In a you know, what the economic experts would say is a reasonable position. If you take a static uh, snapshot of it, you'd say, okay, this is something that we can live with. Uh, Other countries have similar levels of debt. Um, When you start to play it out over time, though, there's a very problematic uh, thing happening, and it's not so much the federal government. The federal government tends to have uh, some buoyant revenue sources, and its spending isn't as strongly geared to uh, demographic change, particularly as the provinces are, because the provinces are on the front line of healthcare. So when you add the provinces and the federal government up together and you start to project a few years out, uh, you do see the overall debt ratio getting up to 100% of GDP and then continuing to rise. And so that has to be a concern. And one of the reasons I don't like seeing the federal government getting bigger the way that it is right now is because they're going to take up a lot of the room that the provinces are going to need, uh, especially for health care and not only for health care. Um, you touched on it earlier. I just want to go on into a little deeper. Uh, we're, we're at historically low levels for, for borrowing money and, uh, and, re- and servicing our debt. We know the interest rates are as low as they have ever been. They're not going to stay there, right? How much trouble can we get into and how quickly can that happen? It's going to probably happen more slowly than some of us who worry about these things would like. And I, 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 it's not like I'm, I'm looking for bad news here, but um, some types of things seem to trouble people, uh, policymakers, more than other things. And that, that configuration of interest rates and growth rates uh, really is a very compelling message for them. Um, the key relationship is between interest rates and growth rates. If the economy is growing faster than the rate of interest, and right now it is, we're bouncing back from the pandemic happily, and borrowing costs are still very low, uh, what that means is that you can continue to run deficits because your uh, economy, your tax base is going to grow faster than the interest on the debt can compound, and that's a very nice situation to be in. But as you say, uh, it can turn around. We've been in the opposite situation in the past, and that was no fun where you had interest rates considerably mm-hmm higher than growth rates. And the thing that I would just say about it is um, it's a great situation to be in as soon as you start to count on it. uh, It's not just the world of being perverse on you. It's that you don't worry about your debt so much. You borrow more. That pushes interest rates up. And you're not worrying about growth. Clearly, the federal government, they talk about stimulus in the short run. But where are the things that would help us grow long term in this budget? I see very little of that. So they're not paying attention to either side of it. And if you're not trying to get your growth rate up and concentrating on keeping your interest costs down, shouldn't be surprised if that reverses. Um, okay, so let's get to the 
elephant in the room here. We've got to pay these bills, no matter how big they get and how fast they change. We've got uh, so we're looking at increased taxes, right? That's the only possible remedy here, isn't it? Well, it, yes, it is. If you want a permanently higher government, you're going to have to pay permanently higher taxes. In the CD House shadow budget, we pointed at the possibility of a GST increase, yep. uh, not because we thought it would be politically popular, quite the opposite, but. Uh, for one, I mean, partly because it's the most robust and sturdy uh, tax base there is. People who think that you're going to do something on capital gains inclusion rates, which they're talking about in the U.S. right now, or or having a luxury tax or some kind of wealth tax on, on very wealthy people, it's just not going to raise the kinds of money that we're talking about here. The GST is a very powerful revenue raiser. Every percentage point on the GST is about $10 billion uh, right now. So every time you hear the federal government saying, you know, uh, 20 billion on this, 30 billion on that, 40 billion on something else, or you look at those longer term projections I was talking about where the baseline level of spending is about 40 billion higher than it was uh, when the federal government last produced a budget in 2019, I think it's fair to say, okay, we don't realize it necessarily, but effectively we're voting ourselves a four percentage point increase in the GST rate. Now, how do we feel about that? And that conversation isn't happening and it should. So what's the timeline? What are you thinking? I mean, we're heading into an election that always complicates these kinds of things, but uh, this is going to happen sooner rather than later. What's interesting is to look even at the government's own projections and what they imply about how much we're going to be paying per dollar they're spending. We've just come out of uh, a a year that's unlike anything in in any of our living memories where the federal government was actually borrowing more than half of every dollar it spent. So on average, the cost of a federal program dollar was less than 50 cents. And for the marginal dollar, the additional dollar they were thinking of spending it, it looked like they were basically valuing it at zero. If you look at the projections in the budget, you see that number, less than 50 cents, uh, climb very rapidly. Uh, 80-odd cents in a couple of years, 95 cents a couple of years after that. So even inside the budget projections, and these are projections that are super optimistic when it comes to growth rates uh, being high and interest rates being low, even then. Uh, the the program cost of a dollar of uh, sorry the tax cost of a dollar program spending is is back up to ninety five cents so that sticker shock is coming mm-hmm. uh, and we don't yet know how we're going to be charged for it but it's going to happen. We've talked primarily about the federal budget. Uh, understandably, it came out this week, but Alberta's in a similar situation uh, with revenue issues and spending issues. So, um, are we going to be looking at more taxes in Alberta too? I mean, you know as well as I do, it's been a political suicide tax when you mentioned the PST in Alberta. Well, I, if it were up to me, and this is why I'm not an elected politician, uh, I would be looking at a sales tax. I just think you want a good, robust tax mix. You don't want to be always relying on corporate profits, uh, especially when uh, they are as cyclical as they tend to be in a, in a resource-based economy. So uh, I, I would opt for it. I'll just say that. And uh, uh, I can't hear the reaction of your listeners, but I, I know a lot of people w- won't like to hear that. What I One of the things that I I think every province needs uh, over time is a bit more fiscal room, uh, which is sort of a clinical way of saying room to raise taxes. I said already, I don't like the feds getting big the way they are Mm -hmm. right now because they're eating up that room. Um, Alberta does have a relatively expensive government, so there's room for, for trimming some expenses there. But I said already, I'll say it again, you look out a few years, uh, 5, 10, 20 years, and it's very clear that the cost of health care, uh, in a 
addition to some of the higher long-term care costs we know that we're now going to be footing partly through the public sector, um, the provinces are going to have to pay that. The feds, they're talking a big game now about uh, transfers for this and transfers for that, but that money's not going to be there long-term because they're in la-la land when it comes to all this borrowing. In the long run, got to be paid for, and I see the provinces as needing some fiscal room, so it's it's tough on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be realistic and they have to communicate this to the population, but if you want the health care services, you want the long-term care, uh, at some point, yes, it's going to have to be paid for with higher taxes. Yeah, someone has to pay for it. A harsh reality. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for uh, giving us a reality check this morning. I appreciate well, it. Well, thanks, thanks for having me. At least the sun <laughs> is shining, and uh, we'll come back and uh, maybe talk about a more cheerful topic when we can. Sounds like a plan. Thank you very much. Very good. That is Bill Robson, who is CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. We're going to talk about some good news right now. This is a fascinating story. We have some amazing, amazing young people in this province that uh, are just doing things that you would think other people could do, um, but we're relying on our young people, and they're maybe, maybe just going to find a way to lead us through some things that we definitely need help being let out of. We talk a lot about the COVID pandemic, and and for good reason. It's affecting each and every single one of us each and every single day. Um, But parallel to this, and perhaps even worse in terms of the number of deaths, is the opioid epidemic, which hasn't slowed down in the least. In fact, it's uh, accelerated over the past few years, and we can't seem to have government come up with a strategy to actually deal with this and make any headway in keeping people alive. Uh, in the five years between 2016 and uh, 2020, 12 Canadians died each and every day, every single day. 14 people ended up in hospital as a result of opioid use, and as I said, it's only continued to go up. Now, last week, the federal government announced $20 million in funding to help communities deal with this crisis. And there are countless different approaches being taken to try and end the carnage. Uh, Not many of them all that successful, obviously, with what we've seen. So a trio of students at the University of Alberta have come up with a concept that, you know, if you think about it, it seems to have absolutely huge potential. And it's quite simple in a lot of ways, but it could make a big, big difference. So Adarsh Badesha is a science student at the University of Alberta and CTO and co-founder of Fentagon. Um, And she joins us now. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So, I've got you mixed up here. Okay. Um, Fentanyl. Yeah, I think uh, initially Simmons was taken. That's right. That's what uh, it was. Okay, there you go. Out. All yeah. right. We made a switch. Yeah. I apologize. Um, uh, no, it's okay. Let's, Fentagon, let's just tell us about the concept. It, it seems so simple, but so effective. Just tell us what Fentagon is. For sure. So, Fentagon is a fentanyl detection system that we're hoping to get into the hands of users to empower them to give them preemptive knowledge of whether their substance contains a lethal dose of fentanyl within it. Um, It's a a syringe, right? Yeah, so uh, essentially it's our technology. We'll be embedding that within the mechanics of the syringe. So we're looking to create this in a syringe-like shape so we don't impede the user's um, habits at all because a lot of what is currently in the industry, there's a lot of barriers to it. Um, As we know, drug addiction and and use is more psychological than it is physical or anything else. And so disrupting these habits um, and creating barriers to use, these are all just um, steps and downfalls that that, that exist to users actually stopping and and getting help and and becoming better for themselves, essentially. So um, what we want to do is fit seamlessly into that and empower users with 
the knowledge um, of, of, of a, to prevent a lethal overdose. So how quickly would it work? I mean, is this, uh, it would be an instantaneous thing? Like they load up their syringe and bing, immediately they're notified that there's a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl there? Yeah, so that's the, that's, we're, we're still looking to explore the research and development, so I can't give you an exact time at mm-hmm. the moment. But um, from what we've been looking at, the, from the time of in, uh, loading up the syringe with the substance, we're looking at seconds uh, until they get feedback as to whether or not it contains that lethal dosage. So we want to make that as instantaneous as possible so that the user doesn't have to wait around um, for feedback. Uh, amazing. What, what point of development are we on here? You've entered some contests already in terms of the, the idea. Where are we in terms of uh, seeing this rolled out? Yeah, for sure. So um, Offensagon started just over a year ago uh, with our ideation. And in that time, we initially gained a, a bit of seed funding through the World's Challenge Challenge. And then uh, in this past few months here, we've uh, been able to get funding from our partners at Alberta Innovates and TELUS. So um, we've been doing a lot of research and design for this last year. And we're just looking into that last portion of research and design this summer. And we're looking to have something... Um, that we can actually bring to users and bring um, to people to gain feedback on and optimize our design by the end of this summer. Uh, with our partners at TELUS, I think that's a very possible goal. So that's the next stage, is to try and continue to push this along. And uh, how optimistic are you that you know we'll see this move into its next phase fairly soon here? For sure. So, um, yeah, so uh, in terms of our timelines, we're thinking by the end of this summer, we want to have our research and development wrapped up uh, for at least our initial products, and then throughout... The, re- the remainder of 2021 be getting um, feedback from users and people through, uh, through focus groups and contacting them through safe and substance sites. And so by the beginning of early 2022, uh, we're looking to have clinical trials underway. And then as soon as we can get those wrapped up, a few more uh, Canadian health regulations um, you know, under our belts, and, and then we're, we're trying to get it in as soon as possible. Um, yeah. Now, the reason you guys decided to focus on this, I mean, you've got some personal, I mean, who doesn't at this point, right, with how widespread this this epidemic has become? But just tell us why this became a focus for you. For sure. So, as you said, this is incredibly personal for for all of us. Um, I grew up here in in Millwoods. I've I've been in Edmonton my whole life. And so I've seen addiction. I've I've seen substance use my entire life growing up. And I'm I'm Punjabi. And in the Punjabi community, it is quite prevalent. Um, and, And something... That uh, why so it's been in my mind um, essentially my entire life growing up just substance use and, and opioids in general um, because in, in Punjabi culture it is something that's quite normalized to use um, but when you come here it, it's very different um, and so harm reduction is something that I was able to be introduced to in the last year or two um, in, at my time in university mm-hmm. which is something that was completely new to me and I was it was fantastic I was like this is definitely the way we need to be treating people this is like a way uh, to the future so this is just the things that got us um, leading up to this and then uh, on, a, on a personal note we just uh, we saw the need for it like we we've been working in the harm reduction realm for a little bit and we realized that um, the systems that are in place currently there, there's a lot of barriers to entry for substance users um, they have to go into sites there's a lot of stigma um, there's time taken out of that use and going into these places for safe consumption. So there, there was a gap in the system essentially that we noticed where it just, what we have wasn't enough or it is enough and it might not be working the ways we want it to be working. 
So we saw that something needed to change. And so that's the, um, the initiative we kind of had in mind when we first uh, started thinking about this a year, oh, I guess a year and a half ago. Um, and then through some ideas and through Simran, uh, also has some personal experience, AJ as well. Um, we just started brainstorming and then uh, recognizing different gaps in the system. And then we landed on this. It's a, it's such a simple concept, but it seems like it could do so much good. Um, congrats. And I look forward to seeing where it ends up. Yeah, for sure. And then um, I guess one more thing that I would add there is a lot of people have um, like a stereotypical user in mind where oh, yeah. it's, it's some person who's homeless on the streets and uh, they're just, you know, I don't know, whatever else stereotypes are, are brought up on them. I, I think many of us know. But uh, I, I think through our data and our statistics, we realize like that's just not the case, right? A, a vast majority of users are actually using in private, subs- in res- sorry, private residences. Um, and so this is the market that's being missed. Market is hard to call. This is the, the target population yeah, the demo, that yeah. that isn't uh, being being helped at the moment. So that's nearly, I, I believe, seventy percent of users. Um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I believe it's around seventy percent are actually using and overdosing accidentally in private residences. Yeah. So that's another reason we we chose to target that demographic. Uh, and the statistics we have, I say, aren't even that aren't even the whole picture, right? There's so much that goes into who identifies as a user and how we get information about them that I think this is a much more widespread problem than any of us really realize. And uh, it, it definitely needs some innovation. Yeah, I think that is slowly changing. I think you make a good point there, Adarsh. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, it is, oh, that's, you know, um, the addict or the homeless guy living downtown that I drive by sometimes. And it stays that way until it's your kid or your brother, or your teacher, or your doctor, or a nurse that you know that lives down the street, your neighbor. Uh, and then it starts, you start to have a realization that we're talking about something that is touching every single segment of our population. Nobody is immune to this. And a lot of people get started on this path by, you know, in some cases, well-intentioned doctors prescribing them pain medication to handle post-surgery or whatever the case may be. And for a certain segment of the population, you can end up addicted, and that's it. And it doesn't matter where you live or where you went to school or anything like that. We're all vulnerable. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that for a long time that wasn't older thought about addiction, that only some people can addict, become addicted or, you know, uh, moral failings were right, also right. a big thing when it came to, to that. But it, it's not the case. Honestly, I'd say with how widespread it is, everyone's just a few bad turns away from from being in a situation like that and it's horrible and i I hope that never happens to anyone and that's why we want to have this happening but it's much more real and like tangible than anyone thinks i i I think we ran across some statistics where um the opioid epidemic is costing the canadian government and the canadian people about 46 billion dollars in um in uh uh, productivity because like it's, it's not just random street people or homeless people that are being affected. These are real people who are productive members of society at one point who are just now in a bad place and they need a a time to get better. And there are people who, a lot of these people are people who want to get back into society. They want to be productive, but they're not just, you know, they're not just homeless people who want to be in that situation all the time. It's just that it's so addiction is just such an overpowering force in people's lives and uh, there's, there's always that, that little something uh, they need to get out of there. And so uh, we recognize that Pentagon, we're not the solution sure. to the opioid epidemic. And we'll say that every time. 
we're definitely just a piece of it. Like in order for us to get out of this, we need to take like a holistic approach. We need psychology. We need uh, social services. We need things like that. So what we're hoping is that Fentagon is that one thing that can step in there, provide the user um, with preemptive feedback so that maybe this is a safer use. And then with continued safer use, they're able to access other things like social services and psychology to, to better their situation. Awesome idea, and I look forward to seeing how it progresses from here. Thanks so much for your time today. For sure. Thanks, Chair. Yeah, you bet. That is Adarsh Badesha. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.